Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. What is the word sentient mean? Does it mean that our ability to experience the world, to feel the world? Is sentience the same as being conscious? I mean, does it simply describe the senses or does it pertain to the way we experience what we call reality? These are big questions, and there is a wonderful, accessible, brilliant, delightful book by Jackie Higgins, who went to Oxford and has worked for Oxford Scientific Films for over a decade, along with National Geographic, PBS Nova, Discovery Channel. She's written and directed and produced films at BBC Science. Her new book, Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses, is an absolutely fascinating look not just at the natural world but about existence itself and how living things experience it it is such a great pleasure to welcome jackie higgins and let me begin by thanking you for making these big concepts so tangible to my tiny american mind welcome (laughs) john thank you so much for having me it's an absolute pleasure to be here and i'm really excited about the conversation we're about to have as am I, because this book is delightful. I said to you in the break, I'm recommending this to all my believer friends, all my atheist friends, my conservative loved ones, my, my progressive loved ones. Uh, you know, you point out in the book that it's really Aristotle who first declared that we humans have five senses. That's it. Those five. Some of us believe maybe there's a sixth. And over the centuries, we as a species haven't really wavered from that belief very much, have we? I think it's appealing in its simplicity. Um, but it's wrong. Aristotle was mistaken. And, um, and scientists today would say we have um, as many as 33 separate senses, each served by dedicated receptors. Um, and in the book, I focus on 12 of them. Um, so, so yes. And so the senses that we know and love, you know, sight, sight hearing, smell, touch, taste, um, split into different senses. Um, and there are other senses that we have that we aren't aware of because they operate below our conscious radar. Um, mm-hmm. And I explore those in my book. But what Oliver Sacks referred to once as secret senses, which is such a lovely term, and I use it. Yeah, and I want to I want to go deep on some of these. I mean, scientists really debate whether animals experience consciousness as we do, but they they always ascribe sentience to them. So really what you've done in this beautiful book is you're turning to the natural world, to our fellow creatures to explore what we mean by human sentience. And when you say we have up to over 30 different senses, do you mean Homo sapiens, or are you talking about all living things collectively have over 30 senses? Homo sapiens. So um, there are many other senses in the animal kingdom that we, um, at the moment, (laughs) can't tap into. 
um, you know, the platypus's electric sense, um, the honeybee's ability to see UV. Um, there are all sorts of different senses that um, that we don't currently have. I mean, there are all there are amazing. Um, there's a, amazing studies going on to kind of widen our sensory remit. Um, but I just concentrate on the ones that we uh, evolved, the ones that we um, the ones that we use day to day, um, knowingly or unknowingly. Let me begin with the most basic question I can ask you, which is how how should one properly define being sentient? Is it just being aware of the world around us and and aware of our own place in it? That's a deceptively simple question. It's the it's the question I ask at the top, the very first line of the book, and I spend the rest of the book answering. <laughs> but the way that I describe it is um, is I, I talk about just the ability to sense the world. Um, the, the, the ideas of um, experience and perceptual experience or consciousness are so complicated. There's this wonderful Henry Marsh quote that I use at the very top of the book. Um, Henry Marsh is um, an extraordinary neurosurgeon who brought back these awake craniotomies where he drills a hole in someone's head and in order to make them better, he leaves them conscious while he probes their brain to look for the, to excise the, 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 um, the piece of brain tissue that's causing them damage. And he has this line that every time he pushes his sucker through the jelly material of the brain, he can't <laughs> believe that he's pushing it through thoughts, feelings, emotions. And so this, this material to immaterial is still um, unexplained uh, it seems like a miracle, but of course it will. I firmly believe we'll have a scientific explanation at some point. But to avoid that um, that area, I, I simplify. I use a very kind of parsimonious explanation for sentience, which is simply the ability to sense the world. And when you use that definition, you can you can broaden out your sentience net and encapsulate, um, you know, most of the animal kingdom. Which is what I find fascinating. Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest takeaway I have from the book is, um, besides the fact that it's brilliant and yet accessible for a mook like me, is that our concept of sentience as, as a species really is very limited to our own means of experience. Our reality is just one simple version of the world, and it's a book that one cannot approach without taking an enormous amount of Homo sapiens humility. Yes, I love that. I love the fact you've talked of humility. That's exactly how I feel. Um, there's this wonderful term called the Umwelt, which was um, coined about 100 years ago um, by a German baron. Um, and it essentially means the slice of the world that the sensors in our body dete sensorially detect. So we know and love our Umwelt. We often take it for granted. But there are other creatures with other senses whose reality is completely different, whose sensory experience of the world is completely different. They have a very different umwelt. So I just love the idea that, you know, as you're walking, um, I'm in Kenya at the moment. <laughs> really? um, and I was out this morning. Yes, I was out this morning looking at black and white rhino. And I was thinking about what the world might appear to them. Um, but, you know, even, even with creatures less exotic, I'm going for a walk in my garden back in England, um, at my feet are very many sensory realities. Um, and it's just proof that what we think of as reality is far from it. Um, so yes, 
So, you know, I, I, you could get even bigger and more romantic about this thought when you think of Copernicus and this idea that, mm-hmm. um, you know, that we were always at the center of the universe. Again, we're putting ourselves at the center of the universe, thinking that our reality is the reality when in fact it is not. <laughs> well, let, let's let's break that down a bit, because I learned a whole lot about creatures I've always taken for granted in the book. And it is a book about all animals, not just humans. Um, in, in one chapter, your chapter on, on touch, for example, I learned a whole bit about the swamp uh, dwelling. Is it the star? The star nose mole, which star nose mole. Yes. 22 small tentacles in its snout, and that allows it to. Uh, consume its prey at a very, very great speed, but it, it also, as you put, possesses the most sensitive touch organ of any mammal yet discovered. What yes. What does that mean to our species? As as discovered by Ken Catania and his amazing research. Um, just to say, just to put that in perspective, this 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 um, what Ken says is that you've got to imagine six times the sensitivity of the palm of our hand squeezed into this tiny star, which is about the size of our little fingertip. Mm -hmm. So just imagine, I mean, it's impossible almost for us to imagine that touch sensitivity, but the, but the wonder of, of, of the star nose mold. And the reason he um, it's in my book is the very same sensors that enable it to feel its way that, that are densely packed on these, on its little star, Yes. are the same senses in yours and my fingertips. They're, they're Merkel-like cells, Merkel very cells. similar. Merkel cells, mm-hmm. um, coined by, named after the German anat- anatomist who discovered them. And, um, it, mm-hmm. sorry. Oh, no, I was going to say, it, make, it makes one think of Helen Keller, uh, you know, in terms of be, being able to communicate by lightly touching someone's throat and feeling the movement and vibration. Totally. Uh, you know, we have the exact same cells in our hands as this incredibly sensitive mole. Yes. And these endless, so the book is about the endless similarities between us and our relatives, the animal kingdom. Um, You know, I view the, I view the animal kingdom as one great, vast, sprawling, epic family tree. Um, And so the, um, through evolution, um, through, you know, we've got uh, common ancestors back through evolutionary time and we share um, features we share traits just like we share traits with our parents um, mm-hmm. slightly more closely related to us than the star-nosed mole <laughs> but um, so we share share traits with you know other mammals but also you know fish and all sorts of creatures I use all sorts of creatures in the book well, I love how you find ways to take other elements of the human experience and ascribe them to being distinct senses. L- let's start with the one everyone can relate to, which is the sense of desire. You have a terrific chapter on this. And I must admit, when I think about human desire, I don't really have um, the giant peacock moth on my mind very much. But uh, <laughs> this is a really, really amazing example of, of how animals use what we call pheromones in ways that we um, are only beginning to understand how humans employ the same devices. Yes. I mean, before we, before we move on to human pheromones, I couldn't resist using the giant peacock moth of, of the night because of Fabre, who was this amazing um, French entomologist. Um, he and himself is, is um, a subject worthy of study. And he wrote about this moth um, hundred years ago so beautifully so poetically um in fact his books are a pleasure to read um and so i start that chapter with him at night 
with a female uh, moth cocooned in a gauze jar. And as the lights dim, the males come swooping in. And the way he describes it is so magical. Um, and since then, um, other silk moths, of course, have, um, um, there's been amazing studies. The very first pheromone ever discovered was um, with Bombex, um, the silk moth. Mm. And, um, and so I start the story of the discovery of pheromones and insects. And then, of course, they've been discovered throughout the animal kingdom um, to the point that um, Tristan Wyatt, the zoologist um, at Oxford, would say, why is it that we, he would say, given they're so prevalent throughout the animal kingdom, it would seem it would make sense that they would be found in us. But right. it's such a this idea that somehow um, our choice of a partner um, or love is somehow beyond our control um, or beyond free will is such a an awkward concept for us to grasp that um, that we have to pass a very high bar of um, evidence to prove that human um, pheromones are real. And so that's what scientists are trying to do. Um, and, yet, and that you, perhaps, you could, I'm sorry. Uh, well, one, no, not at all. My, my, please go on. I mean, I, I was just going to say one can meet a desirable mate potentially online and they can click off all your boxes. But when you meet that person, if they don't smell right to your body, the attraction simply won't be there. I mean, what amazed me about these moths was if the females release their pheromones, the males can smell it from up to three miles away and they'll stop whatever yeah. they're doing and they can trace these pheromones through the air for miles to find a potentially willing female. So it's interesting to extrapolate that to think about the mystery in terms of how we are attracted to the potential mates for offspring that we're attracted to. Yes, Completely. And I think smell is so important. There's a lovely book by Rachel Hurst called Hertz called um, she calls uh, smell the sense of desire. And she talks of how um, smell more than any other of our senses has this privileged access to the emotional part of our brain, the amygdala. Um, and she hijacks rather wonderfully Descartes famous line and says, um, Instead of I, uh, she says, I smell, therefore I feel, which is wonderful. Mm. Um, so, and there's all sorts of extraordinary experiments um, looking not necessarily at pheromones, but other, other sense that uh, women release or men release. And in terms of how the opposite sex finds that attractive. And so the chapter is full of all sorts of kind of cheeky experiments that take place in strip bars and um, speed dating. And um, it's, it was, that was one of the most fun chapters to write, actually, in research. I, I want to ask about a few more animals because there's so much in here that unites us. And this is truly a book that I think, like I said at the beginning, really transcends politics. You, you talk about the great gray owl. Um, and their version of echolocation. And the book really suggests that anyone can learn a human version of echolocation. I, I appreciate how, you know, the, the scientifically, the ears of the great gray owl have this incredible range that they can hear 20 decibels lower than the human ear. But you talk about human experiences that show the exact same conditions where our own limited homo sapiens sense of sound can become greatly enhanced. And we're using, we're using this sense, this sense of stereo all the time. I mean, hearing is about having two ears and it's, it gives us a real sense of geographical space. I mean, you know this when you're watching a movie where the stereo sound is slightly off, we instantly are aware of it. 
um, we will be walking down corridors, staring at our iPhone, and we'll recognize when a wall is coming up without having to lift our heads because of the echoes that our feet are making. And subliminally, we're picking up the idea that the echo is bouncing back off a wall that we're approaching. And scientists had looked at this, and there were some fabulous experiments done in Cornell in the 1940s um, to prove that this, um, to prove that how blind people, because previously, um, Blind people were thought to have this sense called facial vision, that yes. somehow they, scientists couldn't quite understand how they were aware of their environment without being able to see it. And of course, it was all proven to be our ears. Maybe that sounds rather obvious now, but um, but we all have this, we're using this ability, this echolocatory ability all the time, and we can finesse it. And again, scientists have studied um, people with sight and and um, and taught them how to echolocate and they can get better quite quickly. Um, well, building on that, I want to ask you about, I want to get to humans in a moment, but the peacock mantis shrimp, which has incredible eyesight because they have additional photoreceptors that allow it to see colors that are invisible to humans. But you point out that many of us actually have this condition, uh, tetrachromacy. Am I saying that right? Tetrachromacy. Instead of three visual cones, some of us have four, and some of us, without even knowing it, are walking around perceiving this world in such a broader range of colors. So, so it's not it's not that common, and um, it's only women. <laughs> oh, really? More likely to be more likely to be women. More likely to be women tetrachromates because it's um, it's passed down through the sex chromosomes. So, um, so that said. Um, um, so th th this brings up this idea of our perception being such a private experience. So mm. you may be one of these people who, who sees millions more colors than the rest of us, um, but you would have no idea because that's your reality. I mean, that's exactly. your everyday morning, get up on Monday morning, you know, boil the kettle, put on a cup of coffee, bleak, it's probably raining because we're in London. And but that's your, <laughs> you may be seeing the world in, in a kind of, you know, multicolored hue that the rest of us can't grasp. So, and that was the really interesting thing I thought with this chapter is um, Gabby Jordan, who is this scientist based at Newcastle over in uh, Britain, who found the world's first tetrachromate woman. She's a woman. Um, I haven't met her. I don't know who she is. She's referred to as, as a CD, you know, a, a couple of letters and numbers. Anyway, she... Um, when Gabby found her, and she couldn't, but she, Gabby had to invent these, um, come up with this experiment to investigate a level of perception that was beyond her, Ken. Right. Um, so that in itself was extraordinary. And then when Gabby found this lady who could see these colors that Gabby had kind of created for her or see the world in, it, Gabby didn't know what what um, this woman was seeing. Her, her, her perception was forever beyond i mean impossible to know so that was a nice that was important to get across in my first chapter because of course one can then start to think about animals and yes. if it's impossible to understand how you're seeing the world um how can we even begin to how does one begin to come up with concrete ideas it's all you know fed by science we can look at the senses that these animals have and look at their anatomy and their physiology and that um and do behavioral experiments but if we can't imagine what another human is is, is um experiencing what about a spookfish or a peacock mantis shrimp or a star nosed mole or a cheetah or anyway so so 
uh, scientists quite often feel rather hesitant to to explain what the experience of these creatures are uh, philosophers less so and philosophers are happy to talk about it um the thomas <laughs> nagel what's it like to be a bat question <laughs> right well i mean that's what's amazing here wondering how much of us have some sort of abilities that are similar to our cousins that are dormant. I mean, I've always wondered how much did language rob us of other senses when we didn't need them anymore because we could use these verbal symbols to communicate. You go so deep, not just into the world of animal experience, but the world of, of human experience. And one of my most profound takeaways from the book was the very profound way that, that people experience the world of the senses different from the rest of us. You talk about uh, the Australian artist Conchetta Antico, who who does see the world in millions more colors than us. Uh, the American psychology professor Pam Costa, who is in pain all the time. And then a gentleman named uh, Ian Waterman, who has a condition that um, is, well, it's what your book's all about, but it's quite hard to describe it. He 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 suffers from what they call body blindness. He cannot feel, he cannot have, the sense of touch. And even this word body blindness is not necessarily the way to describe it. It's, it yeah. eludes our language. I mean, this sense, this sense of proprioception. So he can't, first of all, he, he doesn't have, he can't feel the world through touch, through fingers. He can't feel the corrugated roughness of a walnut or the smoothness of a ball bearing. He can't, if you stroke his arm, he can't feel that. So he doesn't have those two sides of touch. Mm. Um, but he also more fundamentally has lost this sense of body or what's technically known as proprioception. And it's this sense that when we close our eyes, we know where we are in space. We've got this sense of, I'm sitting here in front of the computer. I can move my finger and touch my nose. You can't see me, but I hit it with wow. my eyes closed. And this connectedness and feeling of your body. And Ian, when he, when he got, he basically, um, he, he, uh, a nasty virus wiped out his, these senses for him. And he woke up after kind of a few days of fevered grimness in a hospital bed. And with his eyes closed, he could not feel his body from his neck down. And not the numbness that you get, you know, when you go to the dentist and you've still got a sense of your gum. He felt disembodied. I mean, it's, it's, it's such, this sense is so automatic and so familiar to us that it's, it is impossible to imagine losing it, actually. Um, and I've met Ian. I mean, he's, he's, he's the most wonderful man and, and um, he's relearned how to move because he That's what lost... I loved about his story. That's what I found so incredible about his story. He yeah. had to retrain himself to use a body that he cannot feel. Yes, and the way that he does it is he uses another sense. You know, we flex, we move, we had, he, he had to. And using his sense of vision, he, so he hadn't lost his sense of movement. He talks about the fact his arms, he's in the octopus chapter and his arms, he loved the fact that he was like an octopus. But his arms would go off and they'd still be moving, but he would be unaware that they would be moving and he'd lost control of them. So in order to regain control, he looked at his arm and that enabled him to kind of pull it back into control. But he had to break down every single motion, every movement that we use into minuscule and minute, more minuscule kind of components and then rebuild, reassemble just the simple act of sitting up in his hospital bed, swinging his legs over. And then the, mm. the most extraordinary thing of being able to walk again. But, you, but if, if he loses sight of his body for a moment, he stumbles. 
Um, and he told me it was with fireworks, you know, that momentary blindness you get after a bright flash of light, even that is sufficient to make him stumble. So he relies on his sense of vision um, in a way that we can't, again, we're so fortunate not to, not to rely on it like, like Ian, but, but he's I love an how, incredible man. Oh, indeed. And I, I love how you related his story to the experience of the octopus and that octopi have, have tens of thousands of these sensory receptors on every tentacle. And, and as you point out, that's how they get around. Their brains are only one part of their intelligence. Yes. The re well, their brain, more specifically, their brain is in their, their arms. Mm -hmm. Two thirds of their brains are in their arms. Um, so they are, now this is a creature that's more um, closely related to an oyster than it is to us. So right. the, the octopus, and it, it's the last chapter, it's so other to us. I mean, it's, it's again, um, evolution essentially evolved minds twice over. And, you know, people have likened the octopus to, we don't need to go to the stars to find aliens. This alien is here on this planet sharing, <laughs> sharing Earth with us. It's so different. And so <clears throat> Peter Godfrey Smith, who wrote a wonderful book called Other Minds, um, talks about the octopus experience. Um, and I quote, and I quote him, um, because he dares to tread where scientists fear, and he likes to, he he he's he uses scientific fact to explore what the experience of an octopus might be. It's wonderful, um, yeah. and and the and because and but it's particularly wonderful. I mean that they're 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 extraordinary in all sorts of ways. You know they taste through their arms. They yes. But for me, the sense that is so other again is this sense of proprioception. Um, and this idea of its arms having um, being uh, being uh, uh, different from its from its um, head. Um, anyway, so you know when you Atticus Finch advising his daughter to kind of crawl inside someone else's body to really understand, you know, what makes them tick. You know, to teach her to teach um, Scout empathy. I mean, how do we mm -hmm. do that with an octopus? Mm -hmm. It's so it is so other. Uh, it's bewitching. It's hallucinatory. It's it's wonderful. And it's what's delightful about this book. And I could I could talk to you all day about the different creatures. I mean, I learned so much about the bar-tailed godwit, which <laughs> flies from Alaska to New Zealand because they have magno um, magnetoreception. They can sense mm. magnetic fields to guide their sense of direction. So many mm. senses that are so beyond anything Aristotle ever conceived of. Uh, it leaves me with the question, based on all the research you did for this wonderfully readable book, what has given you hope? for the future of our species, based on what you learned about the different ways different creatures experience this world, this existence? I think, I, I think that the, um, for me, it was a reaffirmation of the fact that there is more that binds us together than splits us apart from all these creatures that we share this planet with. Um, that, that for me is that was the really exciting thing to be able to kind of display and show and and use science to kind of technically unpick that um i think i mean oh it's so difficult i th th yeah. you were talking about um oliver sacks before before we started mm -hmm. this interview and 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 i mentioned um his his last op-ed in which he he um i'm just going to read it actually it's just here it's just this one line that um I ended the introduction on. He says, 
Um, he'd just been told that he was going to die and he knew that he wouldn't write again, um, a, another op-ed again. And he said, I cannot pretend I'm without fear, but my predominant feeling is one of gratitude. Above all, I've been a sentient being, a thinking animal on this beautiful planet. And that in itself has been an enormous privilege and adventure. And what I wanted to show with this book is to really get to grips with, with why we should feel so grateful to be a sentient creature, to look at all these different animals that share levels and have senses beyond ours. And um, for it to be a joyful exploration of the human, of the human experience through exploring other animals on, on, on our planet. And it's one of the best books I've read in ages. Um, this is a, every single chapter in this book goes after a different sense through an exploration of, of a different animal. And from there explores what we can learn about this as humans. And I can't thank you enough for joining us. The author is Jackie Higgins. The essential book is Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. It is the rarest of books, one that I can recommend you buy for anyone of any ideology or background, because it is a book about the things we share. Uh, Ms. Higgins, thank you so much for joining us all the way from Kenya. I'm so honored. And thank you for this incredible book. <laughs> the rhinos say hello. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Hope to have a part two sometime because there's a lot more critters in here I had never even heard of. And wow, it's a deep <laughs> Me dive. Me too. What Till a real then. pleasure. Be well. Peace. Thank you. We'll be right back. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Edu slash podcast. A couple days ago, I tweeted out her video, and uh, I tweeted that I may in fact be in love with this woman. Her name is Tanya Walker, and she posted a video on TikTok. Her name is Low Maintenance Liberal. Um, just to give you a refresher, here is, it's very brief, the video she posted. Now, I'm half Southern. And so I grew up with a lot of New York accents and a lot of Southern accents. And I love when I hear a Southern accent moralize like this. 
A lot of people in the United States right now are renting Airbnbs in Ukraine and buying stuff off of Etsy from Ukrainian sellers in order to get money into Ukraine. They're never actually going to stay in that Airbnb. They're not going to get that product from Etsy. They're just doing it to help the Ukrainian people. So they were posting about it on Facebook, and a lot of people came into the comment section and was like, this is absolutely disgusting. You should be helping Americans before you help anybody else. Now, keep in mind, these were the same motherfuckers that whenever we said black lives matter, they're like, but all lives matter. So what is it? What is it with you motherfuckers? Either all lives matter and we should take care of every fucking body, or you motherfuckers were just lying when you said all lives matter too. Which one is it? We fucking know what it is, but I need you motherfuckers to finally admit that all lives don't fucking matter to you. Please fucking do that or shut the entire fuck up. Now, I <laughs> I shared this on, on, my, on my Twitter. Gotcha. Shut the entire fuck up. I know. We ha- we all have a new favorite catchphrase. You know how many people were delighted at that phrase and are using it? I, I shared her video, and I it got like 41,000 likes on my Twitter account. That's the power of her words. And I'm a big two fan of... views. Right? How many millions? Uh, over two million views of that video. Wow. Very impressive. And and I'm a big fan of, uh, of vulgarity and morality going hand in hand. I, I kind of view her as, as being a Kentucky woman version of, of Henry Miller. Now, this rant went really viral on this hypocrisy about which lives matter. And we've talked about this many times. If all lives did matter, we wouldn't need a Black Lives Matter movement. So then Tanya's TikTok account was taken down. Right? Ain't that a bitch? So she moved over to Twitter and launched her account. And we have been trying to get her as many new followers as we can. And she is just amassing new fans by leaps and bounds. And so I thought, well, shit, I've got such a crush on this woman's brain and heart. Let me let me go ahead and ask her to come on the show. And best of all, she didn't mace me or nothing. She said yes. So please welcome to SiriusXM, uh, low maintenance lib, Miss Tanya Walker. Hello, guys. Um... Hey. I'm excited to be talking to you guys tonight. So nice to have you. Thank you so much, Tanya. Where are you joining us from this evening? So I am in Greenville, Kentucky this evening. And you grew up in the beautiful state of Kentucky, right? I absolutely did. Just the next county from where I'm at uh, right now in Ohio County, Kentucky. I think I think a lot of folks, conservative and, and liberal, can relate a lot to your story and your experience. Can 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 you tell us briefly, Tanya, what it was like for you growing up in small town Kentucky, and and what was your family like when you were younger? So I had the kind of family that um, now I learn that was racist, but we didn't know we were racist. You know, they towed the racist jokes and they said things like that. But then they would tell us, well, we're not racist. We we love everybody the same, but we didn't. And, um, you know, I grew up in a Pentecostal church. My mom was actually atheist, but my aunts took us to church and that's where we were um, raised in religion. And we were just kind of taught um, that our place was to be a man's wife and and, you know, that we didn't have any value past what we could provide in a marriage. Um, and that my view of the world was strictly uh, Southern Baptist or Southern Pentecostal conservative, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I'll say. Um, and how did that go? I know that when you were when you were young, your sister was in a terrible accident. And, and that actually was an example of, uh, of where the church came to your aid. Oh, absolutely. So um, whenever I was eight years old, my sister and I were crossing the highway and she was hit by a car and 
she had to learn how to walk and talk and everything again. She was in a coma for a really long time, and she spent a very long time in the hospital. Um, during that time, we were kind of passed around to different households, but we got to do things like swim in a swimming pool at somebody's house and uh, go out to eat at restaurants that we never could have afforded. And I got my first pair of Nikes ever because of the kindness of all of these strangers that wanted to help us out while my sister was in the hospital. And this is what I, I struggle with, you know, with, with American conservative Christianity, because there are a lot of nice people and there is a lot of charity out there. What, what bothers me is the politics of it and how it doesn't really reflect the teachings of Christ at all and how all of this women are second-class citizens, gospel of Ike Turner shit, is to me very Old Testament, very St. Paul, not Jesus at all. Um, and it seems like eventually— while you were a good girl and went to church, that eventually you started having your own doubts about organized religion. I'm not talking about your your own spirituality, but your own doubts about organized religion. Oh, absolutely. Um, I call it seeing through the bullshit. Um, right on. It was just kind of an awakening <laughs> that I had. Um, whenever I decided that if I started educating myself that everything that I had been taught wasn't exactly true. And if it was true, um, it had been spun in a way to make it true, just truthful enough um, yeah. for us gullible people to believe it. Yeah, I, I understand that very well. I mean, I had pretty liberal parents politically, but I, I still went through something very similar. And, and it sounds like for a long time, you were afraid to question the reality you were raised to believe. Oh, absolutely. And whenever I finally did question that reality, um, I lost a lot of family. Um, I have a, a very significant part of my family that doesn't have anything to do with me at all because I did um, see the truth and they still haven't come, um, you know, as far as I have. I'm so sorry to hear that, but I, I again, I know what that's like uh, when you think it's love, but no, it's really obedience, um, you know, but I'm sure you'd also at the same time do have conservative Christian family members who, who still love you, right? And they, they accept you as you are. Oh, absolutely. Um, one of my best friends passed away just recently of cancer, and she used to tell everyone that I was the most Christian-like atheist that she had ever met, um, and she <laughs> would defend me tooth and nail against any other Christian just because I'm so respectful of everyone's belief. As long as you're not trying to push your beliefs off on me, you are welcome to have whatever beliefs you want to have. Right on. I got to tell you, Tanya, some of the best Christians I know are atheists, and some of the most godless heathens I've ever met have identified as, as, as Christian. But, you know, it, it seems like that you were raised, as many Americans are, with this whole belief that, you know, people on welfare are just using it to buy expensive things, and the Mexicans are all stealing our jobs, and a lot of other racist tropes. Oh, absolutely. I remember that there was this one racist joke that my grandfather used to tell religiously, and I would laugh at it, and I would tell other people, and I'm so ashamed now to remember that I did those things, because I that it wasn't, there wasn't anything bad about it until I came out of my small podunk town in Kentucky where there was only one black person in the entire county um, and started actually being around people and educating. And that's the biggest thing. Like they talk about how yeah. we're indoctrinating our children whenever we send them to college. And it, it's not, it's just getting them out of these small towns where they're taught these things as religion and they're just absolutely not true it's so so true if anything education is supposed to be about un 
indoctrinating you from what you've been programmed and and giving people a chance to program themselves and decolonize all the stuff that they've placed in your mind. I'm curious, Tanya, what what happened when you decided to make this change around around 25? What did you do in your life? So um, around that time, me and my ex-husband were having some problems and my daughter's dad, and he decided the only way we could fix it is to go to church and start counseling and that was just going to fix us. And it really didn't because my eyes were opening that everything that they were telling us and everything was just a sham and I couldn't work through that with him. And so we finally did divorce and I went my own way and was a single mom for quite a while until I met my husband who believed the way that I did and made me be able to be much more open about who I was as a person and the way that I felt and my belief system. So how did you come to start making these videos on TikTok and, and doing these rants? I, I love what you do, and I, I love your take, and I love how much morality and how much caring for other people is behind all of your rants, no matter how full of cussing they are. <laughs> so um, one day, me and my boss were sitting at work during COVID, um, you know, we I worked for a small business, and we had the same cutbacks that everybody did, so I was the only employee that was still working. And I had a lot of free time, and my boss was like, try TikTok. You really need to try it. He's got a TikTok channel, and he's got a lot of followers, and he said, you are just going to love it. So I made a TikTok one day, and I started making a couple of videos here and there, nothing big. And then just one day, I had a video that kind of took off, and it just kind of springboarded from there to the point where I made an effort to go out every day, even when I barely had any time, and even when I didn't think that I could, to make these videos because because I knew they were important and that people needed to see them. And the, the reason why is because I knew that this education helped me see the light, and I wanted other people like me to hear it in my voice um, and in their voice so that they it was more believable to them. And I'm taking it, of course, being that you're from Kentucky, you're a huge fan of uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, right? Big fan of the guy? <laughs> So he was actually how I got my big break on TikTok. Um, so my we did the little TikTok viral trend where they said, uh, my husband doesn't love me anymore. And um, I said, after eight years of marriage, my husband doesn't love me anymore. My husband said, I didn't say I didn't love you. I just said I wasn't going to drive you to Washington, D.C. to hit Mitch McConnell with a can of twisted tea. <laughs> and a couple of big people uh, duetted that and used our sound, and it just kind of blew up. So he made me famous, but... I I have a couple of choice words for him. <laughs> <laughs> and what I love is that you began making real money off of TikTok. Uh, was that a surprise? And, and what did you do with the money when it started coming in? So it was really a surprise. Um, whenever I found out that I could actually make money off of views on my videos, that was really awesome. And I was kind of like, you know, a kid in a candy store at that point. And I knew that I had a responsibility with my platform. Like, I don't care how many followers I lose or anything like that. I'm going to keep it real. So I also knew that making that money off the platform, that wasn't my money. Um, so I donated 100% of everything that I made off of that TikTok channel. If uh, one guy was just talking about how he needed to get his driver's license and it was just too much money so we just looped him over enough money to get it and we just did little things like that to help people that just really needed help right then um 
We did a lot of stuff with the the Kentucky Tornado Victims Funds and things like that. Went and bought snacks for the volunteers. Um, just any way that we could help. And then we brought in a couple of advertisers on that channel as well. And with that money, we also donated everything that came from that as well. It's just fantastic. So that leads me to ask, Tanya, what was it that happened with your TikTok account? So on TikTok, unfortunately, whenever you get mass reported, um, if you get mass reported enough, they just take you down. They don't give you the option to appeal it. And every time that I post anti-racism videos, I always have a lot of mass reports. It'll get taken down. My videos will be down for a couple of days, and then they'll come back up because I'll win my appeal. Well, whenever that video started going viral, there were so many people coming to my page making mass reports. They didn't give me the chance to appeal it at all. I just lost my account altogether. Wow. I can't believe it. So do you you have a chance to restart your TikTok, or are you just done with the platform? I mean, can you open a new account? How can they do this? Um, So I started from the ground up for the first time, um, and this is actually, I'm on my fourth account because every time that I get between 40 and 50,000 followers, I get banned like this. So this is actually the third account that I've lost. And so I just keep making new ones. Now I'm at low maintenance. Liberal one is the account that I'm using right now because they've also locked me out of my spare account as well um, on the platform. And how do we follow you on, uh, on Twitter now that you're taking over Twitter too? So on Twitter, it's at low maintenance, or I'm sorry, it's at low lib. And there is a link tree in my bio on TikTok as well as on Twitter that links you to all of my accounts. You know, John, what, yes. what she described uh, with her TikTok, that happens a lot to a lot of creators and a yeah. lot of big creators. And it's almost like a cottage industry for them to have multiple accounts where it's like, all right, time to go to the next one. Delete it at 400K. It's almost like a bragging point. Oh, but God, anyway, don't tell me. I mean, my, my I Twitter, need, my Facebook page has been hacked since last June and I haven't been able to get it back. I need to jump in, Tanya, and say, oh, so Tanya is, lives in Muhlenberg County, John. Okay. Um, which is, uh, so and they near Central City, which is the, they claim to be the, the home of the Everly Brothers. Okay. Um, Very nice. And Muhlenberg County is also uh, where John Prine's father lived. Um, and it happens to be close to Murray, Kentucky, where I went to college. I spent four uh, years in that part of Kentucky. Wow. And wow. she is 100% indicative of the kind of people that I became friends with out there. It's just like, I'm just, it's just so awesome. But I feel the same way. My family in Virginia, I have lots of relatives, Tanya, who talk exactly like you, but you don't hear folks with accents like yours on TV espousing humanist positions or empathetic positions or atheist positions or pro-LGBT or anti-racism positions, at least not enough. I, I, I get angry and, all the day all the time about how stereotypical the presentation of Southern accents is in this country. Yes, we're just dumb neck kicks. And we see that so often. We actually have a travel channel as well that's Photo Tour Kentucky that we're kind of trying to bring up. And we do these road trips all around Kentucky. And we meet the most amazing people and hear the most amazing stories. And you never hear them outside of Kentucky. You know, we're just yeah. these hillbillies that don't know any better. Oh, God. So t- tell us one more time your your uh, your handle on uh, on TikTok, because I'm still trying to get myself going on TikTok. I uh, Twitter and Insta have exhausted me, but I'm going to I'm going to join TikTok just to follow you. 
It is at low maintenance lib. Or I'm, I'm sorry, at low maintenance liberal one. Liberal one. Okay, great. And so I gonna... always will be at low maintenance liberal, and I'll just keep adding numbers every time they take an account. Tanya, I hate to say this. I don't want to. I don't want to appear too forward, but uh, I hope I get to vote for you for something someday. Uh, I definitely have plans to run for Congress. We are working very hard towards a 2024 run. Um, our kids will almost be out of the house by then, and it's just the perfect time to definitely throw myself a lot harder into politics. Well, I hope you have very proud younglings because you are an amazing mom. And I love it. in just like, what, three days, you've already gotten your first 2,000 followers on Twitter. That's going to escalate right away. And you're welcome back here anytime. We'd love to have you back and talk more about what's on your mind because I love what you do and I love how you do it. Absolutely. I will be coming back anytime you guys invite me. One of the senior Manhattan prosecutors who invested, investigated Donald Trump believed that Trump was guilty of numerous felony violations and that it was a grave failure of justice to not hold him accountable. That's in his resignation letter. We're talking about Mark Pomerantz, of course, who resigned yesterday. Uh, Pomerantz and Carrie Dunn, another senior prosecutor, resigned last month after Manhattan's new DA, Alvin Bragg, stopped pursuing an indictment of Trump and we still don't know why. Pomerantz wrote, the team has been investigating Trump, harbors no doubt about whether he committed crimes. He did. Uh, and they had planned on charging him with falsifying business records, specifically his annual financial statements, which is a felony in New York State. They say the evidence proves Trump committed multiple felonies, but the DA will not indict. And Chris just told me that the Daily Beast is now reporting the Manhattan DA's office has begun returning evidence. So, karma, where are you at? Hiding under the desk somewhere with Merrick Garland.